How could they do this to me? How could he choose that over our friendship? I'm so grateful to know today that almost nothing in my life has anything to do with me, unless it's my behavior, my attitude, my reactions. None of it has anything to do with me. But back then, everything was being done to me. Welcome to episode 307 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Stephen, Pamela, Deborah, Jennifer, and Bridget. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Stephen, Pamela, Deborah, Jennifer, and Bridget for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. And today, I am pleased to share with you a talk by Aaron J. I identified with his certainty that it was his job in life to take care of everyone around him. I share his frustration when those same people didn't do what he knew was best for them. He got in deep much more quickly than I did, but that may be more about opportunity than inclination. Without further ado, here's Aaron speaking in 2012. Thank you. I am a member of Al-Anon. My name is Aaron J. My home group is the One Purpose Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. We meet at 8 o'clock on Thursdays. We study a step every week. On the last Thursday of the month, we study a tradition. I absolutely love my home group. I hope you feel the same way about yours. If you're ever in the Charlotte area, please look me up. My wife and I are uh, in the phone book, and we'd love to take you to a meeting. We've got a lot of good Good recovery in Charlotte, as I can see that you have here. I want to thank everybody who's welcomed me and made me feel so welcome here since since I got here, and uh, and thank Carrie and the committee for inviting me to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Is this good, or should I point this up? No. All right. How's that? Is that better? Okay. I'm not going to start over. But I do want to look and see what time it is. I'm not going to go till 9.30. Okay. Um Anyway, I'm just really grateful to be here, and I want to thank everybody for, for welcoming me, and thanks, Scott, for picking me up at the airport, and I really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit, and uh, just really grateful to be here. Um, I'm going to start my story at the beginning. Um, you know, I always, I always like to start out by saying it's true that I meet our very simple uh, requirement for being a member of Al-Anon. My life has been affected by alcoholism in family members and in friends, but it is equally true that the defects of character that made my life so completely unmanageable, uh, the, the self-centered fear and the overblown sense of responsibility for everyone and everything and the resentment and the rage, I really don't remember a time that my life wasn't ruled by these things. So I always want to start out by making it very clear that I needed a meeting long before I picked up my first drunk. I am here because there's something wrong with me. Now, it took some alcoholics in my life to get me into a program of recovery that I needed, but that just reminds me that I'm going to try to tell you my story. And I've got to tell you a little bit about some of the other people in my life, but hopefully I'm going to keep this as much as possible about me, tell you what I was like, what happened, what I'm like today. And I'll start at the beginning, and as Scott mentioned, part of my beginning 
start somewhere around here. My mom was born here in Fort Wayne and uh, lived here till she was 11. She moved to to North Carolina, met my father when she was 16, I think. They got married, I think, when she was 19. She had me shortly thereafter. I think she was 20. And uh, and just kept on having kids. I'm the oldest of five uh, kids. And uh, I grew up in a home that was absolutely full of love. There was no abuse of any kind uh, in my, my uh, home growing up. as a lot of love. But there was also a lot of fear. And I never... I never really know how to put this into words, but it was like love equaled fear. If you loved someone, you were afraid for them all the time. You were afraid for their safety and their well-being, and that's kind of how you knew how much you loved them was how worried you were for them. And I remember that from an early age, thinking that that, that seemed unusual. I loved my parents deeply, but uh, I had a hard time with them growing up. I felt very smothered by my mom. Um, I felt like she was very overprotective, very fearful. And I rebelled against that from a very early age. Um, and it was a, a family joke early on that mom had this need to save the universe. She was going to go out and save everybody. So in addition to the five kids, I had a series of foster brothers coming in and out of the home. And um, I, there was always someone I didn't know staying in the, the spare bedroom because mom was taking care of them. There was always someone, a stranger at every holiday table that mom was ministering to in some fashion. And these are not bad things. These are good things. But being selfish and self-centered from a very early age, the way I saw that was all these strangers are getting unconditional love from my mom. And for some reason, I felt left out. I felt like I had to perform uh, for her love, uh, perform to be approved by them. And I have no idea where I got that idea. It did not come from my parents. I made that up in my head. But uh, like I said, I didn't understand why mom just had to always be out there rescuing everyone and worrying about everyone. And I, I just, I guess I thought that's how she wants to be. I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism. And, and coming into Al-Anon and learning a little bit about this family disease and how we're all affected has really allowed me to have a wonderful relationship with my mom today. The only real drinker I knew uh, was my mom's mom. Um, and so looking back, I think I have a little bit of an understanding why mom was the way that she was and some compassion for what it must have been like for her being the oldest child of a problem drinker. I try not to call my grandmother uh, an alcoholic because she does not call herself an alcoholic, but she, as far as I know, is still a daily drinker today and has been for as long as I've known her. Now, growing up, she was the fun grandma. I didn't have any, I didn't see any problem with it. She wasn't the grandma that wanted to make me sit quietly and, cart me off to church. She was the grandma that would, you know, act inappropriately in public, and that's always fun when you're a kid. And um, She would give me the first sip of every beer I'd bring her from the fridge, and I'd sneak it, and that was exciting. You know, she was, she was fun granny, and uh, I, I didn't see any problem. You know, and she was always crazy. She didn't change when she opened that first beer. Everybody else in the room changed when she opened that first beer. But she was just, you know, she was the fun one. And uh, as I got a little bit older, I started to see... Uh, the negative impacts of her drinking and her behavior on my mom and on the family. And like I said, really got more of an understanding about why my mom was, and to some extent is, the way that she is because of this family disease uh, of alcoholism. But again, didn't understand that growing up and was just an absolutely miserable kid. Couldn't stand my parents, felt smothered, was always rebelling. I was raised in a a very strict uh, fundamentalist church and school from a very early age. And uh, that did not work for me either. I was constantly getting in trouble at school. Uh, I was socially very, very awkward. I didn't know how to talk to anyone. I just felt miserable in my own skin. Um, 
I was a perfectionist trying to earn that love. Uh, and so I did very well academically and actually skipped second grade. So I was always a year younger than everyone. And that made the social awkwardness a lot worse. And I just, I, I always felt disconnected from everyone and, and just absolutely miserable. Uh, ended up getting kicked out of that, that school, that church school, halfway through eighth grade for nothing in particular. They just got fed up and asked me to leave. I mean, there was no big incident. Just one day they called my parents and said, would you please take him home and never bring him back? And uh, <laughs> my, my parents would prefer that I don't say I was kicked out. They'd like me to say I was asked to leave because that's different somehow to my parents. But So I was asked to leave halfway through eighth grade. And then I was homeschooled for a year and a half, and that was really miserable for everyone involved because by this time I really was not getting along with my parents and having them around me all the time was not pleasant for them or for me. And I was more isolated socially and um, really stunted, I think, in, in just getting to know how to interact with people. And then for grades 10, 11, and 12, they uh, sent me off to another very small religious school, private school, and... Uh, I was absolutely terrified. My earliest memories, some of my only earliest memories, are just a fear, constant fear of, of everything. And um, went off to that school, I guess in 10th grade I was 14. And uh, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what my answer was, but I found it. When I was 15 years old, I found my answer, the thing that was going to make me feel okay. And she came through that school I think halfway through the school year, and I, in my sheltered existence, very sheltered, I had never met anyone like this. Now, she was very easy to pick out of that crowd in this very small school where everyone looked the same and dressed the same and had the same haircut. She she dressed crazy, and she had, I think her hair, hair was dyed pink and shaved in a V, in the upside-down V in the back. And I know today that I could have picked her out blindfolded because I'm really good at finding these people. But she was really easy for me to find, and she was... She was nuts. She um, she was drunk all the time. I never, I just never met anybody like this. It was very exciting. She was drunk all the time. She, um, it was crazy. Um, I, she was an older woman. She was seventeen. I was fifteen. That was very exciting. <laughs> and um, again, I literally had no friends, no nothing. I so I, I found my solution. I don't know if she was looking for someone to save her. Probably not. But I know today that I was looking for someone to save. Mom had taught me that to be a good person, you go out in the world and you find sick people and you hold them down and help the hell out of them whether they want it or not. <laughs> and that's how you know that you're a good person. And that filled that hole in me that I didn't even know existed. And she really looked like she needed my help. She had been past, uh, she had gone from living with her mom to her dad to an uncle and aunt, and I think now she was living with some cousins. Nobody knew what to do with her, and I thought I did. I could fix this. And um, I was off to the races. We, we started dating, and, uh, and it was crazy. Like I said, she was drunk all the time. She lied about everything. Um, even when the truth would have been better, she just lied for no reason all the time. She was never where she said she was going to be. Um, it was exhilarating, and it was terrifying. And um, I turned 16, and I got my license, so it got a little safer because then I was driving us around. Uh, I, I have I have very specific memories of um, of holding her hair while she threw up, and how good that made me feel. 
because she was this sick person and I'm helping her and I'm such a good guy. I'm such a good boyfriend. I'm such a good man at 16 years old. And it just very, very sick, obviously. And um, it filled that hole in me. And, and we, uh, we, we were together for uh, over two years. We graduated the same year. Um, it, was, it was insanity. You know, and why it filled that hole was that as miserable as it could be, I never had any time to think about me anymore. And before, all I had to do was think about me and what is wrong with me and why can't I relate to anyone. And what I never had time for that anymore. I always had someone else to obsess about and to clean up after and to lie for and to make excuses for and to bail out of trouble. That's what I needed. And I never had to think about me. And so we, were, we went on and graduated the same year. She was 19, I was 17. She uh, went off to college in another state and... Uh, I had done very well academically, always on the verge of getting kicked out for my behavior, but doing very well academically, and I turned down scholarship offers. I said, I, I hate school, I hate authority, I hate my parents, I'm, not, I'm never going to college, and I'm moving out, and I did. So at 17, she went off to college, and I got to choose for the first time who I was going to live with, and who I chose were three guys. They were all 17 or 18 years old. Uh, two of them were well on their way towards probable alcoholism and some outside issues to go on top of that. And, uh, and then one of these weird normal people. He wasn't one of them and he wasn't one of me. And someone rented us a house. Four 17 year olds, eight, maybe 18, some of them. Anyway, that's still remarkable to me to this day. And it was, it was a nice place for like a week. I mean, it was not a horrible, <laughs> not an awful place to live, you know, for the first few days. And uh, and we moved in, and it was absolute insanity, as you can imagine. We were 17. We had our own house. There were hundreds of people coming in and out of that house constantly, all hours. And the normal guy, who I'm still friends with today, did what any normal person would do. He moved out. He lasted <laughs> maybe a month. He said, I can't live like this. I have to get up and go to work in the morning. I'm moving back in with my mom. And he did. I remember being so angry at him. How can you abandon me? with these irresponsible drunken idiots because yeah I have to get up and go to work in the morning too but but if I don't pay the bills who's going to if I don't do this and if I don't do that no one's going to take it's always on me and I just started living in this haze of self-righteous indignation about why is it always my job to take care of everything and everyone if they would just get their act together for a few days and give me a break my life would be so much better. Why am I always the one that has to talk to the cops when they show up every couple of weeks? Why do I have to patch the holes in the walls and, and pay the bills? And Why is it always on me? And it never once occurred to me that I was choosing to live there. I mean, I know that doesn't make any sense, but it literally never passed through my mind that I am making a choice to live here, that I have any other options. The only options were they have to change for my life to get better. And that's how I lived the next several years of my life. And it was, it was, it was nuts. It got worse. When the normal guy moved out, we had to have somebody to pay the rent. We had to have a fourth guy. We found this really old guy that was like 30. And, uh, <laughs> he had lots of money and, uh, he was throwing money all over the place and he needed a place to stay. So we thought, well, we'll invite him to move in. And he did. And, uh, he was, you know, probably an alcoholic with some other uh, addictive qualities, but, uh, the reason he had so much money is he was selling those outside issues. That's uh, how he how he had all that money. And then things got really crazy. I mean, I'm talking about um, like something out of a, a movie. I mean, I'm, I'm kicking people off the bathroom floor in the morning so I can take a shower and go to work. And it's just and I'm just angry and tired and resentful all the time, and still have no concept that I can choose 
to do anything differently here. It's just why am why am I surrounded by all these drunken idiots? Why are they so attracted to me? <laughs> well, <laughs> they all have two things in common, right? Alcohol and me. <laughs> So maybe it's not that they're finding me, but I didn't figure that out for, for quite a while. And things were really crazy. Um, I had a good friend, um, one of the original guys that moved in there, and we got to be pretty good friends after my normal friend moved out, and uh, we drank together a lot. I mean, I, I always try to remember at this point in my story to say I was right there with them, drinking with them, doing most of what they were doing with them. You know, this is a disease that, for the grace of God, I do not have. Um, I was looking for something to fill that hole in me. If alcohol had done for me what it did or does for the alcoholics I know in my life, I'd be dead. It just didn't do it. And so, you know, the point there is there before the grace of God. I can't have that self-righteous attitude of, well, if they just hadn't drunk, they wouldn't be alcoholic. You know, I was right there with them. And uh, I'm not an alcoholic, you know. There before the grace of God. But... Um, we got to be pretty close, and we'd hang out a lot and talk, and I got to know him. And what happened, he got hooked on this stuff that the other guy was selling. And I know this is about alcoholism, but I mention this because it's the first memory I have of really trying to control someone's intake of anything. With the girlfriend and her drinking, I never once tried to control that. It was just my job to clean up the mess afterwards. I never tried to stop her from drinking because I knew that wasn't happening. She was out of control. There was no point in trying. But with him, because his person, he was like he was a different person overnight. I've never seen anything like it. It was horrible. And I must have read about tough love somewhere, and I sat down with him one day and just had a real serious man-to-man with him and said, you know, I love you, man, but and our friendship means a lot, but if you're going to keep doing this, we just can't be friends anymore. And he looked at me and he said, okay, see ya. I mean, just no, <laughs> no, let me think about it. No, our, you know, our friendship means a lot. Just, all right, fine. And I was devastated. You know, how could he do this to me? It was always, how could they do this to me? How could he choose that over our friendship? I'm so grateful to know today that almost nothing in my life has anything to do with me, unless it's my behavior, my attitude, my reactions. None of it has anything to do with me. But back then, everything was being done to me, and how could he do this? And, you know, I I, I was devastated. And I I remember the first time my girlfriend was coming to visit from college. And I was really excited about this. You know, I, I I was very proud of my crack house I was living in. I was I was tidying it up, getting ready for I was proud to have a house. I'm 17 years old and I have my own house and I've been looking forward to this for weeks and we're going to sit down and you know catch up and see how school's going for her and I just I remember it. This is just a testament to the type of place I chose to live. She walked in the door, someone handed her a substance. She did what she did every time, which was to ingest the substance without really checking to see what it was, just what she did. And she's off to the races. You know, my plans for the evening involve catching up and getting to see where, how my job's going, how school's going for her and everything. Her plans for the evening, you know, now involve sitting in the corner for the next eight or ten hours looking at her hands. That's what she's going to be doing tonight. And again, how could she do this to me? How could she, she knew I was looking forward to this. And this was not the first or the hundredth time something exactly like this had happened, and yet every time I thought it's going to be different. This time they won't behave the way they've behaved every single time. It'll be different this time. And then shocked, shocked and devastated every time they did the same thing. That's my insanity. I don't know why that was the last straw, but that was it. I couldn't take it anymore, and I had to end that relationship. Um, I have to be honest, and I'm not proud of this. I was scared of her. Her behavior was erratic, extremely erratic by this time. I never knew what she was going to do. So like a real man, I waited till she was back in Tennessee and called her and broke up with her. 
no, like I said, I'm not proud of that, but that's just where I was at. I was doing the best I could and, and trying to take care of myself. And she did what I thought she was going to do. She had a roommate calling me saying she's hurting herself. You've got to, you've got to, you know, tell her that you've changed your mind. And I don't know how I was able to say no. I never said no to anyone. If I, if, if I was going to be a good guy or get your approval or anything, I would do, I did insane stuff. I just could not say no. And for some reason I was able to say no. I can't do this. And I think that was God doing for me long before I believed in that God. But um, I couldn't do it anymore. I said, no, I can't I can't do it. And I moved out of that house shortly thereafter. In my late teens, early 20s, I moved around a lot. I was never in the phone book, obviously. And she would try to call me. She, would, uh, she could never reach me, but she would call my parents at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they would tell me the next day she's calling again, and they'd give me a number, and I never called her back. I mentioned all of that for a couple of reasons. She was the first alcoholic, I believe, alcoholic in my life that really deeply impacted me, and I and I hated her. I thought she was the worst person who ever lived when I came into Al-Anon because of the things she did to me. I thought she had ruined my view of love and of women, of relationships, and I absolutely hated her. But I found out, I was a few years into, into my program, I found out that she did end up killing herself when she was in her early 20s. I think early 20s, the details are sketchy. And the reason I mention that is that, first of all, I didn't hate her anymore. Because I had taken these steps, I was free of that resentment. But I was also free of any lingering guilt. If I had not been in recovery when I found that out, I would have done what I always did, which was somehow manage to make that about me. Oh, what maybe if I had taken a call? What could I have done? And I would not have seen the arrogance, the incredible ego in thinking that maybe I could have had control over a disease that she was powerless over. I would have immediately thought, what could I have done? And I would have felt some guilt and shame. And I was free of all of that. And I didn't hate her. I knew that she was sick. She was not a bad person. She had a horrible disease that made her do some pretty horrible things. But I didn't hate her. I was sorry for her that she never found recovery. And um, But what I found out when I ended that relationship, I was 18 by this point, is that I don't do well if I don't have someone to obsess about. Because now all I have to do is have to think about is me. I can't handle that. I haven't had to think about me since I was 15 years old. So here at 18, I can't handle this. And it was a matter of months before I... You know, found my next volunteer hostage. She was crazy, and she needed a place to live. And alcohol, her older sister's alcoholism was had absolutely destroyed her home, and she couldn't live with her parents and her sisters anymore. And she was still in high school, and we moved in together. You know, because that's, that's just what I do. Apparently, we found a place, and uh, I was 18. I think she was 17 still. And we were together the next four and a half years. Uh, four and a half of what I hope are the worst years of my life, and hers too. I hope for her, um, because it was it was absolute insanity. I don't know if she's an alcoholic. We both did a lot of drinking. We both did an enormous amount of damage to each other, um, because we were just two absolutely miserable people that didn't know how to do any better. And um, it wasn't all bad. Um, we traveled all over the country. I, I bought a VW van. I was trying to be a hippie. I, I had a VW and a beer, I had a beard down to here and real long hair. And uh, we traveled over half the states and lived on the road for months at a time. And I found out that pe- people like me that need Al-Anon make really horrible hippies, or at least I did, <laughs> like really um, schedule-oriented, <laughs> uh, full of anxiety and fear all the time about everything. And... Um, just like it's my van, we're doing it my way. Um, just I was, I was the worst hippie in the history of hippies, I think. Um, but I was I had the look, and you know I really that that seeming ease and comfort of that lifestyle was so attractive to me, and I just I never got anywhere close to it. I just couldn't do it. I know the people I was traveling with wondered what is wrong with him, but because um, they were, they were good at it, I just couldn't do it. 
Anyway, we had some good times, but mostly it was absolutely miserable. And I stayed for the same reason that I stayed in jobs that I hated, in horrible friendships and other in relationships. This idea that it's not going to get any better than this. This is the best I deserve. It's the best it's ever going to get. Um, I felt like she needed me. I really thought that she needed me and couldn't survive without me. And I desperately needed to be needed. Um, but mostly just the idea that the, the most horrible relationship was better than the abject terror of being by myself. I just could not sit alone in a room by myself and have any kind of peace. I had to have someone else there to distract me. And so we were going to get married. We had found a place in Colorado in our travels. Uh, we were back in Charlotte by now, but uh, we had found a place that we were going to move to. We were shopping for rings. And um, what happened was I met the woman who is my wife today. Annie and I were working together for my dad. I was managing my dad's natural food store. When you look the way I did, the only job you can get is managing your dad's natural food store. Um, And she was working there, and we just fell absolutely head over heels, like the kind of love neither of us ever imagined uh, was possible. And I had never met anybody like her. She was so beautiful inside and out, and she had a spirituality that really attracted me. She, uh, that was very different from the dogma I had grown up with. She just truly believed that God was everything and God was going to take care of everything. And I had never met anybody like this. And uh, a large part of what I fell in love with was the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She had been sober about four years at this time, at this point. Obviously, I love drunks, you know, and here's a sober one. So... Um, that was cool, you know. I, I, I'd never met anybody in AA, and um, but the awkward thing was I was getting married <laughs> to this other woman, and so I didn't know what to do. And um, I, I basically decided that if I'm even thinking about this, I probably don't need to run off and get married um, at 22 years old. So I did what was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and ended that relationship. And the reason it was so hard, the overwhelming guilt and shame of that came from the incredibly egocentric idea that she could not live without me. And that's embarrassing to say that out loud. It really is. I don't like admitting that I thought that way. But I really did not think she was going to be able to survive without me. And so ending that relationship was horrible. Um, The other awkward thing was we had a guy who lived in Boulder staying with us who we had promised to take back to Colorado when we went off to get married. Well, if I say I'm going to do something... I'm going to do it. I'm not going to change. I'm, I, I'm a man of my word. So after ending this relationship and not knowing what was going to happen with Annie, my wife today, um, we piled all our belongings in a car, in our car. Um, the girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-fiance, and this friend got in the car, and I drove. I wouldn't let anybody else drive. <laughs> in absolute, if I'm going to do something painful, I'm going to do it in the most dangerous, unhealthy, insane way possible to get it over with. That's another pattern of mine. And I drove straight from Charlotte to Boulder, Colorado. I remember it took almost exactly 24 hours of nonstop. I don't know how they didn't like hit me over the head with something and take over the wheel, but I would not let anybody else drive straight through. I was out of my mind <laughs> when I got there, emotionally, physically, every other way, and uh, dropped her off with some friends. I have no idea how long I was in Boulder. I, um, I gave her everything. We owned four and a half years of living in it because that's how I deal with guilt. You take everything. I'm not going to take anything over the car. And took a Greyhound bus back to Charlotte. 44 hours this time. <laughs> Greyhound bus trip, which is delightful. I highly encourage you to give that a try if you've never done that. <laughs> Live on a Greyhound bus for 44 hours. Um, from uh, Colorado back to Charlotte, and Annie, my wife, picked me up at the 
station at like three o'clock in the morning and uh and we moved in together because that's what i do apparently and uh we had not had a date yet uh, i'm serious we had not been out on a date yet and i and my wife likes me to remember to say i did not cheat on my fiance we didn't annie and i did not have any kind of physical relationship before i ended that relationship i said i Forget to say that sometimes. My wife always lets me know when I forget to say that because she was sober at the time. <laughs> she didn't want people thinking she was doing that in sobriety. But uh, so anyway, we moved in together and probably had our first date the next day, and um, and it was wonderful. I mean, we were just head over heels, ooey gooey kind of romantic love that that we just never thought possible. And and I loved to get to know about AA. You know, I. I um, I started going to open AA meetings with her and meeting all her sober friends, and that was so cool. And um, uh, I even read the first 164 pages of her book and, and thought, well, this is, yeah, this is incredible stuff for people that need it. And, uh, <laughs> and well, then I heard her, I heard her give her AA talk and realized she really needs it because that <laughs> woman she's describing, the, the what she was like part is not the woman I'm in love with today. So I loved AA. I loved her sobriety. I loved everything about it. Um, had no interest in any kind of program for me, but, you know, that, that's all great stuff. And we were just rocking along. And it was just wonderful. And um, what happened, I need to speed things up here a little bit, but we went to visit, of all people, that normal guy. <laughs> and his girlfriend were living in Wilmington, North Carolina. Annie and I went to meet them, stayed with them for a few days, hang out. And uh, Annie had uh, ensured me that she was uh, four years sober at this time. She didn't have a problem being around alcohol. And if my friends aren't alcoholic, I'm not alcoholic. We were at a restaurant that was also a brewery. We were going to order a pitch of beer for the three of us. Uh, they were bringing around little shot glasses, samples, to, so we could see what kind we wanted to order. I'm not here to tell my wife's story. Uh, and, and when she gives her talk, she explains what had happened in her sobriety to get her to this point. But she just reached over and grabbed one of those and swigged the, the shot glass of beer. And uh, again, I don't want to tell too much of her story. She was wanting us to say, oh, it's about time. Join in. And then she would have ordered a real drink. She wasn't a beer drinker. She went, yeah, And she would have joined in. She did not get the response she was looking for. They knew she was sober. I knew she was sober. And the response she got was, what are you doing? I mean, just panic. And she set that down and played it off. That was just a joke. There was no alcohol in that little sip. And that was it. That's the most I've ever seen my wife drink. And everything went straight to hell <laughs> after that, which tells me that this disease is not all about the drinking. It's about the disease of alcoholism, and the drinking is but a symptom of this disease. What happened was I, didn't, I, I was a little nervous about that, thinking, what was that all about? But I didn't really think much about it because I was still up, up in the clouds and... Uh, what happened was, and she's given me permission to tell this, she had a new sponsor. She was going back through the steps. She was doing a fifth step and kind of on the way out the door said, oh, I had a sip of beer a few months ago to her sponsor. And her sponsor said, oh, well, you know, you're going to need to change your sobriety date. Well, that did not go over well. The woman that came home from that meeting with her sponsor was not the woman I fell in love with. I mean, that's the only way I know how to put it. The woman I fell in love with loved AA and loved her sponsor and loved sobriety and the program and the fellowship and everything about it. This woman was angry and resentful and full of rage. And everything changed. It was like living with a different person. And I'm not going to go into all the gory details because if you live with a dry drunk, you know what it's like. And if you haven't, I can't describe it. Um, so there's no point in taking her inventory here. It was rough. And remember, I was insane too. 
I was just as nuts. I did not know how to handle this different person that I was living with. She was just angry all the time. Her, her behavior changed. Her attitude changed. Everything changed. She was saying things like, "We alcoholics pick up white chips to mark their sobriety date down in our area. And she was saying things like, if I'm going to pick up a white chip, I'm going to go earn a white chip. And I was terrified. I really believed she was going to go. She was saying, I'm going to go get drunk. If I'm going to have to change my sobriety date, I'm going to go on a bender. And, and I believed her. And I... My obsession kicked in like it never had before. How am I going to stop this from happening? How am I going to keep an eye on her 24 hours a day to make sure that this doesn't happen? And, of course, I knew it was all my fault because everything is about me. It was my friends. If I hadn't taken her there, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, what's going to happen when I screw up again and she really does get drunk? I was absolutely insane. And uh, first thing I thought about in the morning, last thing before I went to sleep, I mean, just the obsession and the fear and the anger the growing anger about why is she acting like this would just, uh, my life was completely unmanageable. Not that it had been manageable before, but I was describing all this insanity to a friend of hers, NAA, who did a very loving thing and said, hey, you know about Al-Anon, right? And I think I probably said something like, yeah, I know about Al-Anon. Um, my opinion of Al-Anon uh, came from the uninformed views of some members of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> And that's all I'll say about that. I did not have a high opinion of the program of Al-Anon, and it was just ignorance. I did not know what Al-Anon was. And I was absolutely sure at 23 years old that I did not need Al-Anon. The only thing I was more sure of was that I could not go on living and thinking and feeling the way that I was. And I had that gift of desperation that I think a lot of us have to have before I was willing to reach out for help. I had to be absolutely at the end of my rope, out of ideas. I... I I knew I wanted to spend my life with this woman, but I literally could not imagine life with the alcoholic, and I couldn't imagine life without the alcoholic. And that was kind of my jumping-off point. Right? I just didn't know what to do. I could not survive either way. And so I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I know this isn't going to work, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try. And so I went to the Queen City Monday Night Al-Anon Family Group. I still attend it almost every Monday in Charlotte, 8 o'clock meeting, and I walked in there. And looked around, and I was 23. Like I said, I still had that beard down to here, that <laughs> long hair down to here. I might have had that tied up. But uh, I looked around that room, and uh, I thought I, I was even more sure somehow that I didn't belong in Al-Anon. I, you know, it looked to be about 95% female, and that's not true. That's just what it looked like to me at the time. This is 1999, June or July, so. Anniversary is coming up sometime. I, I was in a haze. I don't have a date, but it was sometime in June and July of 99. I looked around there, 95% female in my mind. Um, the median age appeared to be about 102, as far as I could tell. <laughs> and I do not mean to offend anyone when I say that. That was just my skewed perspective. Everybody looks old, I think, when you're 23. And I just thought, there is no way I can have anything in common with anybody in here. And I'm so grateful that uh, they just welcomed me with open arms. Nobody in there cared what I looked like. Nobody ever asked me if I was in the wrong room. <laughs> and I've heard that asked. And I'm, just, I'm not stating an opinion either way. I'm sharing my experience that nobody ever asked me if I was in the wrong room. I would have figured it out if I was in the wrong room. And I was looking for a reason to not come back to Al-Anon. And that might have been one. <laughs> and nobody would give me that reason. And I'm so grateful for that. They welcomed me with open arms and said, you're in the right place. And... Um, also, because of my ignorance about what Al-Anon was, I didn't think I qualified. I thought the woman next to me was going to say something like, uh, and then he ran over the dog, and then he crashed the car into the house, and then the house burnt down, and I pass. And I was going to have to say, hi, I'm Aaron, and my wife took a sip of beer. 
and I'm really freaking out about it. And they were going to say, get out of here. You don't qualify to be here. You know? And I'm so grateful that I landed in a, a meeting in Balanon where, you know what? They weren't talking about the alcoholics, not much. They were talking about themselves, their defects of character, their relationship with the God of their understanding, how they had found a way of life where they could be happy, joyous, and free no matter what was going on with the alcoholics and the others in their life. And I'm so grateful, so grateful I landed in that kind of meeting because that's where I can relate. That's where I can relate. And I found out I do have something in common with these people. And so I kept coming back. Um, I did not talk to anyone. I was terrified of people, absolutely terrified. Um, I, I, I looked down. I couldn't look anybody in the eye. I, I, if you handed me something to read, my hand shook so bad I could hardly read it. Um, but I kept coming back. And things started to get a little better. I found out I'm not alone. I'm not the only person, especially not the only guy who feels this way about the woman that he loves. started learning a little bit about this disease of alcoholism. And that was important because Annie did pick up that white chip. And we did end up getting married in the following January. And we had some good times early in our marriage, and we had some really, really, really rough times the first few years of our marriage. And like I said, I, I, I want to take her inventory here, but she was insane. But the point is, I was too. And I was told early on I can only do something about one of those sides, and I better find a way that I can be okay no matter what's going on. And so I, I just kept having to, to stop taking symptoms of a disease personally and see it for what it was and start focusing on me and my recovery. And, uh, and I kept coming back. After a couple months, I don't know how long it was, I kind of hit a plateau where I just wasn't getting any better and things in my home weren't getting any better. And um, I just kept hearing about this program of recovery and that the program is the steps we took are suggested as a program of recovery. And that if I was going to take these steps to get better, I was going to have to get a sponsor. And asking another man <laughs> to help me in my fear and ego, I guess, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And probably the single best thing I've ever done for myself in my life was to reach out and ask another man to take me through these steps. Tom was always at this meeting at our clubhouse on Tuesday nights, and he always had a solution to share. We didn't have anything in common. He was older than my dad and a professional. I was not a professional. <laughs> he was not married to an alcoholic. I was. We had nothing in common, but he had something I wanted. And one day after that meeting, I just got up all my courage, and I went to him and said, Tom, will you be my sponsor? And he said a couple of things to me that I say to guys today when they ask me to help them, and I'm grateful he said this. He said, are you willing to do everything that I do to get what I've gotten from this program? And, of course, I had no idea what he was talking about, so I said yes. And <laughs> But that was important because he can't help me if I'm not willing to do what he does. It doesn't mean his way is the right way. It just means it's the only way he knows how to do it. And if I'm not willing to do it, he can't help me. And that's, that, that's how it worked for me. And I'm grateful he asked me that. And he also asked, are you willing to pass this on the way it's given to you? And that's what I've tried to do. And, of course, I said, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I want what you got. Well, then he said, I'll be happy to take you through the steps, but i got to tell you, I'm also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I didn't know that. You know, in most of our meetings, we ask that members of other anonymous fellowships remain anonymous during our meetings so we can focus on Al-Anon, and I had no idea who was in AA. Of course, my first thought was there were like 40 people in that room, and I can still pick a drunk every time. <laughs> Just attracted to them. But at that point, it would have been really awkward to say, oh, well, never mind. So, um, so I said, I, I don't care, Tom. I, I want what you got. I'm willing to do what you do. And he said, I'll take you through the steps. The only way I know how. And we got started. I thought I had taken the first step. I knew intellectually that I could not stop my wife from drinking. I couldn't control anything else she was doing. So if she was going to drink, I knew I couldn't stop her. And I thought 
that meant that I knew I was powerless, admitted I was powerless over alcohol. And that was part of it, but he wanted me to take a little bit deeper look. What he had me do, he had me write down everything in my life that I was powerless over. And then next to each one of those things, he had me write down specifically how my life becomes unmanageable when I try to control those things. And that was really important for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, my life's not unmanageable because I'm powerless over alcohol. If that were true, I'm hopeless. I'm always going to be powerless over alcohol. My life only becomes unmanageable when I try to control the things I'm powerless over. And that's the connection that I needed to see, not only over alcohol, alcoholism, alcoholics, but everything. Everything that's not me, I'm powerless over. And I've got to admit that. And I've also got to see very clearly how unmanageable my life becomes when I try to control those things before I'm going to be willing to take that next step. And so I'm grateful that he had me take that deep of a look at the unmanageability and the insanity because I had lived my whole life with this delusion that I can't be happy unless you're okay, if I love you, right? And, of course, being okay, in my mind, means you're doing what I think you ought to be doing and you're not doing the things I don't think you should be doing and you're basically acting the way I think you should be acting. And I can't be okay if you're not doing those things. And so... Because I love you and I obviously have your best interests at heart, if you're not applying my solution to your problem, the only reason, literally the only reason I can imagine for that is that I haven't explained it well enough yet. I can't think of any other reason because I so obviously have your best interests at heart. I know I'm not your God, but I do see the path that God has laid out for you. And you're not on it. And as someone who loves you so dearly, it's my job to put you on that path, gently or not so gently, and to keep you on that path. And so I must not have explained it well enough, so I will explain over and over and over and over in slightly different words every time what it is I'm trying to get to you to explain why it's not okay for you to treat me that way or whatever it is with this, like I said, this insane delusion that one day you're going to get it. I'm going to find those magical right words and the scales will fall from your eyes and the light will shine down from above and you'll say, I see. I see now finally what you've been trying to say and it's so clear, it's so right. Um, You'll apologize for not seeing it earlier. That's always part of this fantasy. And that's the only word for it. It's a fantasy. You'll say, I'm so sorry I didn't see it earlier. And then you'll change and then I'll be okay. That was my whole life. And that's unmanageability to me. That's insanity. That's how I lived my whole life. And so I needed to see... I'm powerless over everything that's not me. And if if my happiness, my serenity, my peace of mind is in any way tied to anything that's outside of me, my life's unmanageable instantly. And it can still happen today. But the blessing is that today when that happens, I know what's happening. I know what's going on, and I can get back to that first step and remember and admit that I'm powerless and that my life has become unmanageable again. So seeing how miserably miserable of a job I was doing running the show, My only hope is that there's some higher power that can restore me to sanity. I did not have a problem with the idea that I was insane. I saw it very clearly in my first step. I knew I was insane. I knew I needed to be restored. I had some problems with the higher power. I came into this program with a lot of prejudice against the God of my upbringing. And, uh, you know, my prejudice took the form of contempt prior to investigation, and it took the form of preconceived notions. And Al-Anon gave me the opportunity to throw both of those away and start all over with this concept of a higher power. And my sponsor pointed out that it doesn't even say God yet here in the second, the second step. It just says that I have to come to believe that there's some power greater than me that could, not even would, could restore me to sanity. Well, that's my only hope. And I'm not quite arrogant enough, even though I did not believe that God would do anything for me. I'm not quite arrogant enough to say that whatever power is out there keeping the planet spinning couldn't restore me to sanity. And that's all it took for me. 
That's that, that was that little foothold so that I could move on to that thir- third step. And now there's a little bit of a leap from this higher power to the care of God. And that was difficult for me. But I'm so grateful for the as we understood. And when I first started going to those open AA meetings, I noticed right off that the only part of their steps and ours that's, a, that's usually underlined or italicized, that's emphasized, is the as we understood him. Twice. And I don't know why that is. I'm sure someone knows why that is. But what that meant to me was that must be very, very, very important because it's emphasized there. And I'm so grateful for that. God of my understanding was certainly not an option for me when I was growing up. That very concept was, you know, right out. (laughs) And so being told that I could choose my own conception of God is probably the single greatest blessing that I've gotten from this program because everything good in my life is a result of that relationship with the God of my understanding that I don't believe I would have found if it had not been for the program of Al-Anon. So with that understanding, I was able to make that decision. I didn't know, and sometimes I still don't know, how to turn my will and my life over. But I know how to make a decision. I know how to make a commitment to live my life as if I've made that decision. And that's all I had to do was make a decision, a commitment, and then try to live like I had done that. And this to me is the anxiety and fear step. Every time I'm full of anxiety and fear, there is something over which I've decided that I need to be in control. And I've got to find what that is and make a conscious decision to turn that person, that relationship, that outcome, whatever it is, over to the care of God. And when I'm able to do that, the serenity you know, that I, that I experience as a result of that is like nothing I've, I ever thought possible for me. So having made that decision, I was immediately uh, into taking an inventory. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do an inventory, and there's no right right way. So all I can share with you is my experience. Mine had four parts. The main part was a resentment list. And um, I loved the idea of writing down all the people I was resentful. I, I sponsor some guys today that just don't think they have any resentments, and I just can't <laughs> relate to that at all. I could name 20 people off the top of my head that had ruined my life uh, from <laughs> kindergarten on. And... Uh, and I, I could, I got to write them down and all the horrible things they'd done to me and how it affected me and see all the fear, 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 fear there. But then I had to turn the page and, and see that I had to set aside everything that was done to me and look at my part. And that's, that was, that was painful. That was unpleasant. Well, first I got to think about maybe forgiving them. That maybe they were as sick as I was and doing the best that they could. And maybe that by forgiving them, I can be free. But then I have to take a look at my part in every one of those situations, every one of those relationships. And as painful as that was, that's where I got to see my defects of character in black and white. It was right there in that fourth column. I got to see what it is that's actually making my life unmanageable. And it's not alcoholics. It's not alcoholism. It's not these people, places, and things outside of me. It's my defects of character that block me from the sunlight of the Spirit. And I got to see them in in my fourth step. and Well, really, in my fifth step. I couldn't really see them on my own. And with my sponsor's help, I was able to see that some of the things I thought defined me as a good person were actually these great defects of character. I mean, that overblown sense of responsibility for everyone, I thought that made me a great guy. It's not. It was selfish and self-centered. Everything I did to take care of you was to get something for me or was out of fear for the pain I was going to feel if something happened to you. And uh, my self-loathing, I hated myself. I hated everything about myself when I got to Al-Anon. It's not an exaggeration. And I thought somehow that was humility. I thought that's how humble people thought, that I'm no good at anything, I never will be, I can't do anything right. And that's not humility, obviously, and I needed to see that in my fifth step so that I could become ready to have God remove this stuff. And uh, immediately following that fifth step, my sponsor sent me home. I spent some time in prayer and meditation. I looked back over the first five steps. 
I saw that I had been as thorough as I was possible. I was ready, more ready then because I saw what those defects were doing to me. I was more ready then than ever before, probably since, to have God remove them. And so I got on my knees and I prayed a prayer. And I asked God to remove those defects of character, and I went to bed, and nothing really happened, and I woke up the next day, and of course all my defects were still there. And I don't know what, it's really silly, I don't know what I expected to happen. But I called my sponsor, I said, I, I, I don't really feel anything, I'm still, I still have this fear, I still have this resentment. And, you know, he probably said something very loving like, did you actually read the words in the step? Because it doesn't say anything about them going anywhere. It says that I am ready, and I humbly ask God to remove them. And part of that humbly to me means it's not going to be on my time. Like everything else, those defects are going to be removed on God's time, and it might not be the defect that's making me uncomfortable at the moment that gets removed next. Hopefully it will be the one that's keeping me from being of maximum service to God and to my fellows. But that readiness that it talks about in the sixth step, that is not some, just, well, I was ready. That's a daily action for me. And my defects of character do not get removed if I'm not taking the action of readiness. Our book, Paths to Recovery, says the sixth step is about how does it phrase this? It's really awkward. It's the action of having God remove our defects of character. And that sounds like a really poorly worded sentence. But I like that because I can't remove them. But I have to take the action every day to show my readiness so that they can be removed. And God does not remove my resentment if I keep putting myself in situations I know make me resentful. It hasn't happened for me. If I keep doing things I know are going to make me resentful, resentment doesn't go anywhere. Uh, God does not remove my shame and guilt if I keep doing things I should feel guilty for. Um, God doesn't remove my self-centered fear if I refuse to do things that scare me, like this. And this is a perfect example. Um, I'm nervous right now. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be. When I was first asked to speak, I told you I couldn't even read something in a meeting. So when I was first asked to speak, it was I had been told that if I was able to do something, I needed to say yes. I was told I needed to learn how to say no to a lot of stuff in my life, but Al-Anon requests were not on that list, and I needed to say yes if I was asked to do something. And I'm grateful that I was told that because I wouldn't be here right now. If, if saying no had been an option, I would never would have gotten up behind a podium anywhere. But um, And then the first time I was asked to speak at something a little bit larger, I mean, and they give you months to obsess about that. Um, every day I would think about it over and over and over, and I would have a physical pain of fear, literally. It would hurt. I was so full of fear of getting up and doing this. And every time that happened, I would say, God, I know that this is self-centered fear. It's a defect of character. It's self-centered fear. I'm worried about, am I going to say the right things? Am I, you know, are they going to get something out of it? It's all self-centered fear. Please remove this defect so that I can do your will, which I believe is to share what this program has done for me. And I would pray that every time. And I can tell you that when I got up behind that podium, I was just as terrified as I had been when they first asked me. The point is, the next time it was a little better. And that's how it works for me. I want it to work in the opposite. I want God to remove the defect first, and then I'll do anything God wants me to do. Sure, I'll do it. Just remove that defect. And it never works in that order. I've got to do what I believe God wants me to do despite how I feel. And in doing so, in taking the action of readiness, the God of my understanding is able to remove those defects of character. Resentment's another good example of that. I'll pray, God, I know it's your will that I treat this person with love and respect, but I can't because I hate them. For what, or I just can't stand them, or whatever it is. And so you just go ahead and remove that defective character, that resentment, and then I'll go treat them with love and respect. And God, my understanding says it doesn't work that way. You go treat that person with love and respect that they deserve as a child of God. And in doing so, that defective character is removed. And I really wish it worked the other order, but uh, the other direction, but it never has for me. Anyway, I, uh, I'm going to wrap this up here. I had worked as thorough a fifth step as I could, but I still had some resentment. 
I had not been fully freed of that. And, uh, and I knew that by making a list of the persons I'd harmed and, and, and going out and making amends to them, that some of that guilt that I still carried was going to be relieved of me. I did not expect what happened to my resentments when I did that. And I made a list. And I became willing to make amends to them all before we started out on the ninth step. That's just my experience. And with my sponsor's help, I was able to go through them one at a time. And these, some of these people were people I would have crossed the street to not walk past. I did not want to go, you know, I did not want to go make amends to these, some of these people. And, uh, and yet I, I did. You know, that, that was a willingness that didn't come from me. I wanted what my sponsor had and what you had. I was willing to do these difficult things. And I'm grateful for that willingness because, like I said, it didn't come from me. But I went and I made these amends, and the guilt was relieved when I cleaned up my side of the street. When I fix what I broke and make it better than it was when I when I broke it, when I change my behavior, you know, my sponsor told me I'm not I'm not asking for forgiveness because I'm not asking them for anything. I'm acknowledging that what I did was not okay, and I'm making a conscious effort and uh, and acknowledging that I'm trying to change and I'm looking for a way to make it better if I can. And when I did that, the guilt was gone. But what I did not expect was that the resentment went with it, and I didn't understand why that works. I always thought for my resentment to leave, you have to apologize to me. For me to forgive you, you have to come beg my forgiveness, and then maybe I'll forgive you, and then I'll be free. But, of course, that means that I'm powerless again, because you're probably not going to do that. So I didn't understand why, when I make amends, my guilt and my resentment leave. And it was a couple years later that I heard an AA talk on a CD where the guy described it exactly how it works for me. I can't stand feeling guilt. So if I feel guilty about something I've done for you, I need a resentment to remind me why it was okay what I did, what I did to you. I need it handy. I need it right there so that when that guilt hits me, I can say, but you did this. You started it. What you did was worse. If you hadn't done what you did, that horrible thing you did, I never would have done what I did. I need that that resentment right there. When I clean up my side of the street, no matter what your reaction is, the guilt's gone, and therefore the resentment has no purpose, and I can go anywhere and do anything today. Because I'm free. I never have to worry about running into someone from that church or that school or that I used to work with today. And that's an incredible freedom that I'm so grateful for. And I never, ever have to carry around that guilt and resentment again if I'm continuing to take an inventory every day and, and promptly as possible make those amends. And some days I'm better at that than others. But I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to keep my side of the street clean. Uh, so I never have to carry that around again. But you know, part of that daily inventory for me is also looking at what's getting better. That's an important part of, of my inventory every day is to acknowledge what this program and the God of my understanding are doing in my life. And it may be just as simple as I handled that situation at work better than I would have a year ago. There's something I need to consciously acknowledge every day that I'm getting better because it is still possible for me on a really horrible day, really bad day. This hasn't happened in a while, but it's still possible for me to get to the point where I think this is not working. I am just as crazy as I was when I got here. This whole Al-Anon thing isn't working. This whole God thing isn't working. I'm broken. I'm hopeless. And this isn't working. It's really hard for me to get down in that deep hole if every day I'm acknowledging that's not true, that I am getting better, and that my worst day today really is better than the best day I had when I got to Al-Anon. So I need to do that inventory on both sides every day. I didn't know how to pray when I got here. and uh, my sponsor pointed me pointed out you know this the incredible simplicity of praying only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out i can't mess that up i can complicate just about anything but that means i don't have to think about what to pray for i don't have to figure out what's best for you so i can pray for it or what's best for me so i can pray for it if i pray only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out and then i do the footwork in the direction i feel led then to me by definition i am doing God's will 
It doesn't always work out the way I think it's supposed to. But I truly believe that if I'm doing that, that everything is happening for a reason. And even if it's the worst possible outcome I can imagine, I'm going to be okay. I've, I've been given a program and a fellowship where I'm going to be okay no matter what comes. And that idea that I'm going to be okay really sums up, in a very simplistic way, the spiritual awakening that, that we're promised as the result of taking these steps. The idea that I'm going, I know that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to read something in just a minute that, that much more eloquently sums that up. But having been given this incredible spiritual awakening of knowing that I'm going to be okay no matter what today, I'm asked to do a couple simple things. Try to carry the message and to practice these principles in all my affairs. I, I tried to do what I'm asked to do uh, in Al-Anon. Uh, you mentioned Alateen. I was an Alateen sponsor for eight years, a huge part of my recovery. If anybody's thinking about doing that, I'll just throw a pitch out there too, and I don't usually do that. But incredible part of my recovery is carrying this message to younger people that have been so deeply impacted by this disease. I just try to do what I'm asked to do. I'm an active member of my home group. Um, I'm there early. I stay late. I've got a service position. And I don't do these things because I'm a great guy. I do these things because this is how I continue to have the spiritual awakening. And then to practice these principles in all affairs. You know, I, in, when I'm in a meeting, I'm on my best behavior. So that means for a few hours a week, I'm a spiritual giant. <laughs> but then I get out in traffic. You know, practicing these principles in all my affairs is still very difficult for me today. But I like the idea, and I heard this early on, that one of the definitions of practicing means to learn through repetition. And that's what I'm doing. I'm learning this new behavior through just trying to do it. And I mess up all the time. But I'm trying to practice these principles in all my affairs, at work, in my marriage, in my crazy, crazy family. And I'm not doing that for anybody else's sake. I'm doing that for mine. Um, tell you a little bit, very briefly... My life today is better than anything I could have imagined. It's life. You know, there are good times, there are bad times. But um, Annie and I have a program-based marriage today. I admire her AA program, and I try to stay out of it. And, um, you know, we have our separate programs. And I, it is, I am not her sponsor. It is not my job to keep up with how many meetings she's going to or her prayer meditation or anything else. I try to stay out of that. But I do admire the program that, that my wife works today. And uh, the program, God and the program have to come first. And that's just our experience. We've tried it other orders, and it just doesn't work for us. It's got to be God, our programs, and then our marriage for it to work for us. And that means we might be on a date night, and the sponsee calls, and they're in dire straits. That's where we're going to be. And again, it's not because we're great people. It's just we found out that other ways just don't work for us. And I'm grateful to be in a marriage. And, it, you know, it's a marriage. It has good days and bad days, too. But because we're both trying to practice these principles, even when we're not on the same path, we are trying to go in the same direction. And I'm really grateful to be in a marriage like that. I, uh, I went back to school a few years ago. The one thing I said I would never, ever do, and got a little two-year degree and got a real job, real career. Never thought that possible. What does that have to do with Alan on everything? I never, ever, ever, ever would have faced that terror of going back to school if it hadn't been for the program. Uh, and, and there's so many good things in my life I don't have time to tell you. Like I said earlier, everything good in my life today is a direct result of this program, the relationship with the God of my understanding that this program has given me. Everything negative is just a result of my will still today. So this uh, spiritual awakening that we're promised is the result of these steps. Uh, this sums it up better than anything I could say. I have lost my book, so I brought this. I left it on a car when I spoke outside of Charlotte few months ago and uh, never turned up and I can't find the original version of this book and I want the original version um, some people call this the promises some people call this the gifts 
I do not wish to engage in any controversy, so I call it page 269 and 270 out of the Al-Anon Conference-approved first edition from Survival to Recovery. That's what I call it. And this means a lot to me because when I heard this early on, I didn't think any of this was possible. And it really does sum up the spiritual awakening that I have had and am continuing to have as the result of these steps. If, starts with a big if, like some other promises, if we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Like I said, when I got here, I didn't think any of that was even remotely possible for me. And the fact that, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, every single one of these promises has come true in my life today is an incredible miracle for which I will be forever grateful. Thanks for letting me share. section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? Man, it's been kind of a busy week. More acceptance seems to be a theme in my life recently. Earlier this week, our refrigerator died, and I mean totally died. We decided it's probably 15 years old, which means it's time to get a new refrigerator. We live in a an older house and has a fairly small kitchen and it has a fairly small space surrounded by cabinets for the refrigerator. And it turns out that there are now very few refrigerators that will fit that space. In fact, at the local appliance store, there was exactly one, which cost somewhat more than we were really wanted to pay, but it's a very nice looking refrigerator. And uh, we decided, I mean, it's our only choice, right? Unless we wanted to buy probably a really cheap apartment refrigerator, which we don't because it would be not attractive in our kitchen. Okay, so except we're spending more money than we had planned. Went in on Saturday to actually order it, and the guy says, well, according to the computer, there's exactly one in the warehouse in Chicago. Let's hope we get it. I'm like, ugh. So right now, we're lucky that it got cold out, and we're able to use a picnic cooler out on our deck as our refrigerator. It's snowing this morning, so it's going to stay cold for a little while, I think. Hopefully until the new fridge comes. But hopefully not too cold, because then everything will freeze. I think we're going to be eating a lot of leftovers from the freezer, which luckily we have 
a chest freezer in the basement, we could put that in. But acceptance of what is and, you know, first things first, what's the first thing we needed to do? Well, we need to figure out how to replace the refrigerator. Actually, the first thing we needed to do was to get all the cold, all the food that needed to stay cold out of the refrigerator that was at this point almost up to room temperature. Second thing was figure out how to get a new refrigerator. Last Sunday, and this is something that's that's going to be going on for a while. My wife and I are taking a class at church on Sunday afternoons that is every other week. Well, first and third week, that's almost every other week. And when we do that, my Sunday is basically completely taken up. And since Sunday is the day when I usually do the podcast, what I've decided, realized, is that until we're done with that class, I'm probably only going to be able to do the, the podcast every other week. Just setting an expectation here, um, accepting reality, and taking care of myself, not trying to overdo things, you know? Saturday morning meeting, talking about step four. I respected on a few things about step four. One was that I was really glad that I had done it the first time in a group because it let me see very clearly that I was not the only person with my particular defects of character. Being able to also see the balance of assets and and defects was helpful, although I had a hard time admitting to my assets, and I knew I had a lot of defects. I was a mess, as I suppose many of us are when we get to Al-Anon. I knew that I was the person who was in the right. I was the person who was holding the family together, was making sure that everything worked and while this active drinking was going on. But at the same time, I was feeling like a piece of crap for many reasons, internal and external. And this contradiction within myself, I think except for really helped to, to clarify that really I was a balance of things I liked about myself and, and things I didn't like about myself. And it was really, and I've said this before, I think that step four was really the beginning of my full recovery. You know, steps one, two, and three gave me gave me a way to feel better about what was going on, to not try to control the uncontrollable so much, and to know that that there was some there was some love and support out there for me. But step four is where put me on the road to really changing who I was and how I lived in the world, which was the real fruit of my recovery path. Well, we welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions. You can call it and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now, 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. We really love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope. And if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website is therecovery.show, where you can find all the information about the show. There's notes for each episode, links to books we read from in some episodes, videos for the music we choose, etc. Also, 
therecovery.show slash contact has all the information about how to contribute your voice. And speaking of your voice, here you are. Wendy wrote about teenagers. Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for having The Recovery Show. I found it about six months ago and love listening to it. I listen to it when I walk the dogs in the morning and find it's a great way to start my day. I love Mary Pearl's talks and would love to hear more of those because she is so funny and relatable. But my favorite episodes are the ones dealing with parenting teenagers who are using drugs or alcohol. I find it slightly different than dealing with an adult user because in the loving detachment, I also have responsibilities as a parent and it's hard to balance those sometimes. I have a 23-year-old son who struggled from 17 with drugs and alcohol and got to a very low bottom. He is now eight months sober in a recovery community. I also have two teenage girls who both started smoking weed and drinking and experimenting with other drugs at 15 and 16. I've been going to Al-Anon meetings for four years, and even though I thought I had found some recovery, the girls choosing to follow their older brother's path really has challenged me and sent me to doing the steps again and doubling down on my recovery. My youngest child is 11 and just starting middle school. It's my hope that we get enough recovery into our home and parenting that hopefully he will not have the same challenges, but it's too soon to tell. I would love, love, love another parenting roundtable discussion with parents of children still at home and in school and about boundaries, their experiences, and their hope and strength. Thank you so much, Wendy. Jeff writes with a very brief note. He says, I just realized the three C's are like the third step. The three C's, I didn't cause it, can't control it, and can't cure it. I'm actually not sure exactly how that works for Jeff, but but thanks for writing, Jeff, and uh, great realization. Angie writes, Hi, I just finished listening to episode 304. Awesome as usual. I wanted to respond to Judy about finding out the real facts and feelings when doing an inventory. Not sure what episode her question was in, but you read a response from someone else, Francesca, to her question. I thought that her response was great, but also wanted to add one thing. For me, it doesn't matter what really happened. What matters is how I felt about the situation or event or whatever. Early in the program, I obsessed over the truth, and that did me no good. I found that there are lots of different viewpoints and perspectives on things that occurred in my past, and I no longer look for the truth. That's in quotes, the truth. Things affected me. Now I deal with it based on how it affected me. Intentions or different perceptions don't matter. My feelings do at least until after I've processed those things through my recovery lens. If I then want to go back and discuss with others to see how they saw things, I can. But I also don't think I have to. Thought I'd share. Thanks so much for all you do, Angie. Thank you, Angie, for sharing that. I think that's really important. I couldn't have said it as well as you did. Hi, Spencer. My name is Kim. Years ago, I opted for a geographical cure and moved from West Coast to East Coast to escape my dad and his addictions. 33 years passed, but recently he moved to our state to be closer to me and my brother due to his failing health. I had done so much work on myself over the last 33 years and believed I could handle his proximity. I was feeling strong. I've been happily married for 22 years and have raised two incredible sons. I've created a great life for myself, but I do have my own challenges. I have three autoimmune diseases, so I need to take extra good care of myself and avoid stress as much as possible. I also have a 17-year-old son who recently and unexpectedly lost his sight. Our life was not easy before my dad arrived, but we were happy, functioning, adapting, and moving in the right direction. When my dad arrived, all my self-help and self-care went out the window, and I instantly transformed back into my 17-year-old self, desperately trying to get him straightened out, desperately trying to control him. I started having panic attacks and became obsessive about him and his poor choices. I got really sick and was driving my husband and boys crazy. 
I started to look for help and found a counselor and your podcast. Unfortunately, we do not have an Al-Anon meeting in our area at a time that I can attend, but your podcast has deeply reminded me that I'm only responsible for myself and my children. I have had to relearn how to let my dad go again with love while he is living only 15 minutes away. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, and I'm so grateful for your support. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for writing, Kim. Thanks for sharing your experience. I'm glad that you're getting back into your self-care. It sounds like that's really important for you. And as somebody pointed out in an email last week, there are meetings online. There are meetings, there are phone meetings as well. And you can find those at the Al-Anon website. There is a link to Al-Anon on the recovery show. If you're on a computer, it's in the list at the right-hand side of the screen. If you're on a phone, it's going to be all the way, almost all the way to the bottom. On the Al-Anon website, there's a, a link at the top, or maybe it's in a menu if you're on a phone, says meetings. And right in there is find an Al-Anon meeting and a little bit lower electronic meetings. So if you can't get to a meeting locally, maybe you can call into a phone meeting or use your computer to get to a, an online meeting. You might look at that because I'm a big believer that face-to-face or at least voice-to-voice meetings were really important for me. Sandy left a comment on Michelle B's talk, which was episode 303. I was touched, moved, and enlightened by this episode. I love Michelle's way of telling her story. I love her story. I love her bravery. I love her vulnerability. I love her love of God, her trust. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If it's possible to find out more, if she has a book or website, please let me know. Thanks. Yeah, Sandy, that was that was an amazing experience, really, listening to her talk. And I really don't know very much more about her than what we've heard. But thanks for thanks for writing. We have a voicemail from Carlos. Hi, good morning, guys. Here from California, Elk Grove. Uh, my name is Carlos. I'm a great fan. Uh, I've been listening to your show. I've actually written a few emails. Peter Spencer, I've read them and actually talked to me through your show and, you know, tell me to hang on. So thank you. Yeah, thank you definitely. I mean, your show has been a great help. And I hope you can hear me okay. I'm actually driving to work. And I'm coming through my um, my car, so hope you guys can hear me okay. And uh, again, you guys are doing a great job. Your show is amazing. Uh, it's the that meeting, Elanot meeting. I can't attend, and I tune you guys in on my iPhone, and um, I listen to the podcast, so it helps me a lot. And I just got done listening to the one with uh, you and Eric. Episode's titled "Take It or Leave It." When Eric was sharing all the stuff he, he went through as far as leaving and taking the kids, I did that too with my wife. I'm still with her. Uh, she's still recovering. She's leave. If my calculations are correct, she's maybe 16 or close to 20 days sober. But it's definitely been a roller coaster. Lately, it's been like a two, three week mark. And then she relapses for whatever reason. And she still actually landed a job as a man as a supervisor and she's actually been risking uh losing it because she's gone out on her lunch to like target and just drank and I would have to either go pick her up because she's waiting outside or uh she's called her mom and her mom has picked up and I guess I'm on I'm to the point where 
I'm, I'm there, to, you know, by support. And, but I'm also asking myself each day, you know, do I want to stay? Do I want to go? Am I going to take it or leave it? I know that Eric has shared before that his qualifier is now his ex-wife. I was wondering if Eric has had shared in previous episodes or is perhaps willing to share a new episode as to how it happened, the whole decision about uh, divorcing his wife. Like, did he, did he come to that conclusion? Was it her? Was it mutual? I know he's mentioned here and there that it was a hell that he went through, but, you know, now he's stronger than ever. So I was just wondering if he can refer me to an episode that's probably, he, he probably already did and shared. And if not, maybe we can touch back on that again. And I know you guys will never tell me what to do, but I just kind of want to hear his experience. Thank you again for everything you guys are doing. Uh, keep fighting the good fight and keep on trucking. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for calling, Carlos. I don't think we've really shared Eric's story. I will ask him if he's interested in doing so. Shaylin writes, Morning. I'm so grateful for your podcast. It has really helped me so much when I can't get to a meeting. However, after struggling with a teen with substance abuse disorder over the last year and being married to a recovering alcoholic with no Al-Anon program, I just found Beverly Buncher's book called Balm, The Loving Path to Family Recovery. It's an extension of Al-Anon, but it adds elements of love that isn't just tough love. If you listen to her miniseries episodes on Codependency No More podcast and read her book, I would love for you to have an episode about this. It really is helping me in ways Al-Anon alone couldn't. Thanks for reading, Shaylin. I haven't had a chance to do more than just glance at the book on Amazon. I will put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 307. Balm, B-A-L-M stands for Be a Loving Mirror. And so I can see where it might uh, might include loving elements, as Shailen says. So Celia called and left a voicemail. Thank you very much for episode 306. My name is Celia O, and I am an Al-Anon member now for two years, and I live in Washington State. I can't imagine what life would be like now without this program. I learned recently during a service position teaching a beginner's meeting about Tradition 1. I, for some reason, became very focused on Tradition 1. I meditated and read about it and was just fascinated by the words and the meaning. I believe it is really the essence of the program, and I learned it firsthand with my beginners. I'm really grateful now that they are members, so I guess retention is pretty good when you share with attraction, not promotion. Thanks again for your wonderful podcasts. I enjoy them very much. Thank you for calling Celia and for sharing your discovery, your insight on Tradition One, which is a common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. Hi, Spencer. I found your show a few months ago, and I've got so much from listening to the stories. Thank you. When I heard Michelle B.'s story, I was blown away. I related so much, and I was so moved by her strength and hope. I've saved the episode and listened to it over and over. I would love to get in touch with her somehow. I don't know if that is possible or if you could share my email with her. I joined Al-Anon about four years ago. I live in London. I live with my husband and our little girl, and Al-Anon has allowed me to live a life that I love, despite the times when it's very hard. 
Look forward to hearing from you, Joanna. Well, thanks for writing, Joanna. And again, unfortunately, I do not currently have contact information for Michelle. Tammy writes, Thank you so much for your show. I love listening to it in the morning. I listen to quite a few positive podcasts and switch up daily. One of your listeners wrote in saying she wasn't sure if she qualified for Al-Anon. And listening to her, I thought she might also benefit from ACA. I'm not sure if you're familiar with ACA, adult children of alcoholics. Even if there's no alcoholic in the home, the characteristics and the behavior can be the same. Thank you again for your service. Of course, with anything, it's attraction rather than promotion. And thanks for writing, Tammy. And yeah, I have a little bit of familiarity with the ACA program, and we did did an episode with Emily, I think it's number 203, the show slash 203, about her experience with ACA, or ACOA as it's often called in this part of the country. Jack writes, Hi, everyone. I've been in the al program for nearly six years and recently found your podcast, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. I've started from episode one and just listened to episode 47, Changes, While Stuck in Traffic. I had tears rolling down my face as I listened to you, Spencer, and could hear and feel the pain in your voice. Your strength and courage during times like this are inspiring. Listening to this episode was a gift from my higher power. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been through tremendous changes at work and my health, which have been overwhelming and at times debilitating. Thank God for our program, my fellow Al-Anoners, my higher power, my sponsor, and you. I've been listening nearly every day to one of your episodes, and there is always something that I hear that helps me. It really works. Anyway, I just wanted to express my gratitude to everyone involved in the production of The Recovery Show. Bless you all. Thank you, Jack from Dallas. Thanks for writing, Jack. You know, that was an important episode for me to do. I wasn't sure I could do it. It was the first one I'd ever done solo, and as you know, could hear I was um, not in the best place. But I've heard from a lot of people that it was um, powerful for them. And so I'm grateful, I guess, that my higher power gave me the will to do it and to keep going. I also suggested to Jack that he might want to mix some current episodes in with the old ones. And he said, that sounds like a good idea. Whitney writes, Hi, I wanted to take a minute to reach out and thank you for your show. I am an adult child of an alcoholic. I am also a newly single mom of a toddler as I had to make the very difficult decision to file for divorce from my alcoholic spouse a few months ago. Over the summer, my mom succumbed to an 18-month battle with terminal cancer. She had been sober for 16 years at the time of her passing. The night before she passed, my ex showed up drunk at my parents' house with an open container of alcohol in the car. I had to kick him out of the house and force him into an Uber. The event was traumatic not only for me, but also for my dad, who was in the process of saying goodbye to the love of his life. Because of my husband's inability to be trustworthy and sober at this terrible time, I had no choice but to entrust my daughter to the care of her nanny for the last several days of my mom's life so I could focus on making sure she passed peacefully and comfortably. Mere days after her funeral, my husband was terminated from a second job for drinking at work. He came home so drunk at 11 p.m. that I had to call the police to keep him from trying to pick up our daughter out of her crib when he couldn't even stand. The next day, I kicked him out and changed the locks. He spent the next 10 days trying to drink himself to death in some motel. When he finally resurfaced, the back of his car was bashed in, and he was in such rough shape that I had to take him to the emergency room to get him admitted to the medical detox unit. He made suicide threats in the ER and was eventually restrained. Having to deal with that less than two weeks after burying my mom was surreal. Once he finally stabilized, I sent him home with his mom to another state to get treatment and filed for divorce. When I was growing up, my mom was an incredibly high-functioning alcoholic. Granted, she was in and out of about a half a dozen detox slash rehabs. She was still always present. 
a lot of embarrassment, countless traumatic events, and she even almost killed us in a DUI accident. She finally found sobriety when I was 20 after detox and several months in a halfway house called the Yellow Brick Road. Her name was Dorothy, and her favorite movie was The Wizard of Oz. When a bed opened up at that facility, her sponsor said, Wow, Dorothy, I think your higher power is ready for you to find sobriety. Why was she right? All that said, I've made the affirmative choice not to raise my child in a home with an alcoholic. As an adult child of an alcoholic, it's terrible to imagine raising your own kid in the same toxic environment. As a single working mom, I really just haven't had the time or ability to make it to Al-Anon meetings. Al-Anon saved my dad's life when my mom hit rock bottom 17 years ago. I've known for a long time that I needed to get some support, but it wasn't until I hit my own rock bottom that I came across your show. On an evening when I was feeling particularly low, because nights are the worst, via Spencer's Christmas show from a few years ago. But I didn't have a babysitter and couldn't get to an Al-Anon meeting. I searched for Al-Anon podcasts, and there you were. Since then, I've listened to several old episodes, and I have to say, each one touches me personally in a different and very powerful way. In particular, last night, I listened to a discussion you had about being responsible to somebody versus being responsible for somebody. That discussion gave me some needed peace in knowing that I did the right thing, taking him to the hospital to get him medically necessary help, even though I was so mad at the time that my irrational mind wanted to just leave him in the gutter. I have a ton of work to do on my own recovery, but wanted to thank you for helping me start my journey. Please keep doing what you're doing, and thank you from the bottom of my heart. Whitney. Whitney, thank you for writing. I'm not sure which episode you're talking about, about responsibility. When I search on the website for responsible or responsibility, there are some episodes that show up, so maybe it was one of those. If you remember the number, maybe you could write back and, and I can share it with everybody in the in the show notes here. Got a couple of reviews on Apple Podcasts, one titled Finding Gratitude. The recovery show has been an integral part to my own recovery in Al-Anon over the last year. The stories, shares, and honesty from Spencer and guests bring me daily perspective. I find myself pausing the podcast often to reflect and respond. Thank you for your service. It is a huge gift. And another one titled A Meeting on the Go. If you are new to recovery, this is a great way to help the process too. I'm six and a half years new into recovery, and this podcast has helped me in so many ways. I'm grateful I found it about three to four years ago. I share it with friends. I listen to it on walks and in my car ride on a regular basis. If someone's drinking or behavior is bothering you, you've come to the right place. As we say after our meetings, keep coming back. It works. But I just recommend staying. And thank you for those reviews. Reviews in Apple Podcasts can help people to uh, decide to take a listen here. listening and please keep coming back whatever your problems there are those among us who have had them too if we did not talk about a problem you're facing today feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode may understanding love and peace growing you one day at a time